Three, two, one, here we go. Rain Man's Take Podcast. Observations on the world we live in. My take on current events and other topics of interest. Also, interviews with some really cool people. So let's get the conversation going. It's a rain man. Just want to give a quick shout out to everybody watching. Thank you very much. I know you're going to find this next interview thought provoking. I enjoy spending time with people like my next guest and getting into more detail about the subject matter. And I know you appreciate that as well. So go ahead and hit the like button and subscribe. That way we can continue bringing you great content in the future. So thanks again for being part of Rain Man's Take and enjoy the interview. Hey everybody, it's the Rain Man. I want to welcome back my guest, CC King. CC, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining me. Um, so some of you will remember, uh, I had CC on a while back. Um, he, he runs the uh, Diabetes Research Connection, which is a really, really interesting um, research facility uh, focusing on diabetes and, and, and how, they, how they fund it. It was just a really, really fascinating uh, interview. And uh, I wanted to have CC back on because uh, several months ago, um, we were together and the Olympics were on. And somehow we got on the subject of uh, that Russian uh, figure skater who got busted for um, some type of performing enhancing uh, drugs in her system. And uh, at the time, CC, you had mentioned that in the past, in your past kind of uh, career in, in research and in science, you had actually worked on uh, programs uh, that helped to uh, identify those type of performance enhancing drugs within, within athletes. And that, of course, fascinated me, um, having been an athlete when I was younger and just kind of watching uh, professional athletes and how that whole uh, professional sports has really uh, taken the human body to almost the complete apex of what it can do. Uh, and sometimes that is chemically induced. And so I thought it would be a great topic to talk about. So Cece, why don't you, let's jump right in, kind of give me a little bit of your background in that part of uh, research and part of science, and then we'll take it from there. Perfect. So um, I guess probably about 10 or 15 years ago, um, my lab at UCSD was uh, doing type one diabetes research. And we became interested in um, some gene therapy potential approaches, cell-based gene therapy approaches for um, looking at and potentially um, generating cells that could make insulin. And so this led us to a person who's been a good friend of mine for now 20 years, Ted Friedman, um, who was a real pioneer in gene therapy. He has been at UCSD for most of his career, has sat on uh, numerous committees and really just a pioneer in um, using uh, viral vectors and gene therapy, uh, primarily in, um, well, a number of diseases. So, and as we started to work together, my lab was adjacent to his, 
and we started to um, talk about um, using sequencing at that time to um, detect changes in athletes. He'd become involved with the World Anti-Doping Agency and an advisor to them. And so we kind of started to, I think, naively think that we could uh, use these um, early microarrays um, for um, looking at DNA and also then what my kind of uh, specialty was, was protein expression. Uh, changes in athletes to be able to detect how people were doping. And, you know, this, this was really early days in this. And we thought, you know, it's just as simple to t take an athlete and randomly look at a panel of genes and see what the expression level was of various genes, or in my case, look at various protein expression using quantitative methods and say, hey, here it is now, after they've taken, say, insulin-like growth factor one or some banned substance, we should be able to see quantitative changes in this. And therefore, we can develop a test and doping will be eliminated in, um, in this. And, you know, it was, it was a cool idea based on the technology at the time. And it still is a cool idea. But I think what we found in the past 15 years is that it's really a much more complicated landscape than this. And I think some of the things that we talked about uh, previously that were you know, exciting to you were kind of some of these questions that have arisen in the sports community. And I think that's probably where we'll go with this. But, you know, again, I don't really know. But the true goal is to kind of begin to explore these finer lines of, you know, doping and genetics and kind of how, how athletes, you know, elite athletes differ from regular athletes from just people walking around like me. Um, and so, yeah, so we started in this. And for many years, I... Um, reviewed grants for the World Anti-Doping Agency. And um, it was just an absolute thrill to see um, exactly how the doping agency was focused on both very large problems like we were trying to address of kind of changing around what was happening in you know, gene systems on an organismal scale versus kind of very targeted things. And so I have a number of references that I kind of keep, that I'm keeping around here that I kind of want to make sure that I don't screw anything up and tell you anything false. Um, but I kind of went through and looked at a few of the grants that World Anti-Doping Agency has been funding, just to give you and um, your listeners a kind of idea of some of the things that are being funded and being looked at now. And so you'll kind of see within this, uh, and I'm just going to name off a few. Yeah, go ahead. Um, um, so really, studies of glucocorticoids after oral administration, evaluation of reporting levels and washout periods, you know, a focused study on one particular performance-enhancing drug and how it can be going. So, and then for another one is, you know, 
is tamaradol even a performance enhancing drug? So there's still at, you know, there's still questions being asked as to what is considered performance enhancing. And I think one of the things that you and I, you know, have talked about and I think want to explore is, you know, if tamaradol is a performance enhancing drug for a certain potential population within the community. So say you have weightlifters and some of them are taking it but have no effect by it, but some of them may. How does that, how can you then begin to say what's really performance enhancing? Um, there's, um, you know, looking at um, DNA mixtures of de and detection in blood sports as a message for looking at transfusions. So how can you tell if some of these elite um, riders, um, you know, cyclists have been doping and, you know, putting in blood or, you know, this is, these are active questions that are going yeah. on. So I just thought I'd give you a quick idea of a couple of the things that, you know, were out there. Yeah. So, and, and that's actually, that's and all those things that while you're talking, 10 more questions just popped up. Um, please. Let, let, let's start, like, like, kind of, let's start from the beginning. So the, the stereotypical uh, image of the doping is the, the 70s, the Eastern Bloc European countries that were under Russian control. You know, they have these crazy strong women and men and it just, it, it, and they were taking some, some really uh, basic sort of, you know, human growth or animal, whatever it was that it was, it was very obvious. And is that kind of when it started or like, like the anti-doping commission, how, how long has that been around? I think it has been around for at least 50 years. Oh, it has my kind of, yeah. So it's, so, but it correlates again with the seventies, but there have been doping efforts, you know, efforts to stop doping really since sport began. Yeah. And, okay. you know, it's, it's really one of these things that it's an organized set and forgive me if I got when WADA actually started, but I think that it was very much of a, finally a group of people getting together and saying, all right, we have all of these various groups that are doing these things. Let's, but let's make it uniform yeah. so that every country can fall under the same umbrella so that something that's banned in one is not banned in the other. And they've done a fantastic job of it. Yeah. And, and just using the, the professional cycling as, as an example, and there's tons of them out there, but just using that as an example, um, you know, back in the day when Lance was, was just destroying the field, uh, you know, all of his issues. But I also remember sort of at the, almost at the end of that whole thing, when it was finally about to come down that he was going to get uh, busted for all this. It was one or two Tour de France's prior to that. Like it was, it was common knowledge. Even the, even the commentators were talking about guys getting blood transfusions after a ride, getting ready for the next, getting ready yeah. for the next stage. So it, it was definitely, it was definitely totally prevalent. And like, like you're just skirting the, the edges of what's legal, what's, what's not legal at that point. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's how the, that's, that's kind of how this really, you know, and this is really where Wada and USADA came into a lot of being and getting a lot of attention was their efforts to ensure that these uh that people like armstrong you know they knew that something was going on it's then figuring out what it was because you know to be honest a lot of these athletes have access to 
you know, companies think about Balco and some of these things that were happening in baseball. Um, and they have access to really amazing technology and really technology that made them much better than the average baseball player. And this, this is just something that needed to be addressed in the field. And yeah. so, yeah, so baseball and cycling really were kind of what took off in all of this. Yeah. And in Lance Armstrong's case, and this is, this, is where I, this is where it gets very fascinating. Obviously his machine had enough money to hire the best chemists on their end and the best, best scientists on his side to fight against you guys and the, and the anti-doping side. And so how did that, is it, is it just purely that he had enough money to buy the best and just you guys were trying to keep up with it? Or I say you guys, I mean, the anti-doping. I, I, think, I think it's, I think it was a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole at the time. And um, I don't think anybody would disagree that the people trying to regulate were always coming against coming up against new unknowns and i think that that's why i you know and people people can disagree with this but i think that a lot of the move towards trying to understand genetic changes and changes in protein expression and changes in gene expression were really popularized because they realized that trying to find every new chemical that could enhance performance was going to be a formidable task. And finding out what the response was in the athlete was much more, was going to be much easier. And it turned out that it's equally difficult. But again, you know, because you're, you're laying on top of that, um, the genetics. But again, we've gotten better at it. And one of the things that's, I think, you know, important to note is that this isn't really um, in humans alone uh, that we're seeing this. And really one of the most interesting uh, things is uh, looking for doping in horses. Oh yeah, yep. And, um, you know, but they're able to give them, uh, they're able to do gene editing on horses. And um, all sorts of um, potential changes to the germline that can be heritable throughout generations. And so it gets a lot more complicated. You know, when you, when you talk about a human, you're normally thinking about, well, it's going to enhance either in the short term or do something of that nature. When you're talking about an animal like a horse, you can make mutations that affect the germline that then get passed down generations. And how can then you tell what is actually doping and what is a genetic variant? And so it gets incredibly complicated very quickly. And that, yeah, in, in, in horse riding or in race, horse racing, um, they actually, they actually have on the, in the book, that whatever that chemical is that the horse is allowed to be on, whether it's on that, that Lisa. Yeah. yeah. And so is that, is that considered a performance enhancing drug? Um, it's not necessarily, it, it's, it's for breathing. And so they like for people to know it because it can change how the horse um behaves and you know this gets in and you know you talk to a bunch of people who are experts at horse racing 
and you know horses perform differently under the, having LASIK versus not having LASIK and if they're off it for a certain amount of time. So it does make a difference, but it's a known variable. Yeah. It's not like um, making a change to the ACTN3 gene that, you know, that increases, you know, if you, if you knock that gene down, you get um, higher ability for endurance, you know, so there's a huge difference. Yeah. And, and how do, I mean, obviously they're, they're the scientists on that side that are trying to, uh, to find these, these ways of cheating. I mean, like just what you just said, it just goes down to the subatomic level that if you change one thing, literally yeah. the endurance of the, of the animal or the athlete changes. Yeah. Well, so, so you, you said something that's, so, Let's not always assume malicious intent with this. Okay. And so let me give let, let me give you an example, okay? And this is this is a this is a pretty good example. And um and you've probably seen it and heard about it, and that's myostatin, okay? And myostatin is a um so negatively regulates muscle growth. So if you type in myostatin inhibitor into your web browser, what you'll see is lots of pictures of really beefy cattle, beefy horses, these really hypermuscular um, horses and animals, okay? There have been children, especially if there's a, there's a child uh, in one of the Nordic countries who was born um, with a defective myostatin gene. And the kid at, you know, seven years old was just nothing but muscle. His parents were elite athletes. And this is a natural, um, you know, this was just a natural crossing of the genes. So this kid is hypermuscular. And so what they found, and it's got this mutation in myostatin. And so what people have found is that if you block myostatin, and there's a number of drugs out there that you can do it. There's one called Myo029. And what it does is it blocks this that allows for muscle growth. And this is being used for treatment of muscular dystrophy. Hmm. So it's serving a good purpose, but people can co-opt it and make it and say, all right, look, if I want to gain, you know, 20% muscle mass, I could take this drug that's not designed for me. Yeah. So it's not always so cut and dry as to somebody having malicious intent. It's kind of a natural consequence of what the research actually is into the field. And, and, and you know, I guess you're, you're right in the sense that, um, you know, everybody is, especially at those elite levels, they're doing everything they can, you know, within the, with, within the rules and maybe sometimes just outside of it, but everything they can to get, the best out of themselves to be at absolute peak performance. Yeah. It, so it just, it just comes across as nefarious because of that. And, we, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this in a second is that that documentary that was made about the, uh, about the doping that, that journalist who uh, did the year's worth of doping with the Russians. Um, it, it just, it just comes across. And, and I, and I hate to be picking on Lance because at the time I loved, I just thought he was awesome. And, even after, and I must be honest here, even after he was caught having done mm -hmm. all that, 
I just loved his attitude. I just loved how aggressive he was. And maybe that was partly because he, of, the, of the, the, the chemicals that he was using. But I think he was just a, just a ultra, ultra competitive dude. I just, I just loved his attitude, but obviously he took it well, too far. But, 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 well, but, you know, you're, 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 we're kind of skirting around the issue of whether doping should be something that is just openly acknowledged. And, you know, this is an ethical debate as, you know, there have been people through the years who've proposed having a, um, an Olympics where people can be taking anything versus those who don't. And, you know, it's, it's a question that bioethicists and other people should be having, but it's an interesting one to sit back and listen to. I guess where kind of my interests have always um, been, and I think that this, this probably goes to a lot of the heart of this, is looking at genetic variants within people. And, you know, I think we all have heard or read about the Malcolm Gladwell book of this 10,000 hours, sort of if you practice for 10,000 hours, you can become an expert in anything. And, you know, through the years, this has been largely debunked because, you know, I don't care if I play tennis for 100,000 hours, I'm never going to be as good as Serena Williams, right. ever, not even close. There's a genetic component to it. And this, this fault, you can't kind of have the doping discussion without the genetic uh, component built in. Because if we go back to the myostatin example, um, you know, how do you classify somebody who is doing, who has a genetic variant that is the same as if somebody started doping, you know? How do you put that, is that, is that fair to have that athlete compete? It's natural, but it's also what gives other people, a, but if other people did it unnaturally, it would be considered an advantage. Yeah. So yeah. where do you put, where do you put this into the field? And, 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 I, and I, if I remember correctly, we even went so far as we were talking about um, uh, prosthetics. You right. Know, if somebody who had who had a uh, who ha who's able to have a uh, you know top of the line leg that actually improved their abilities, why wouldn't it be okay for a normal person to cut their leg off and get that same thing? Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that this that's is a fascinating right. question. Right. It's, it's a great question. And, you know, it, it's one that we're going to have to start to yeah. face as we understand how different everyone is. You know, the example in the book, and uh, the name escapes me, but I will get it to you um, for uh, post-production, um, about baseball players. Most baseball players have a... Um, genetic polymorphism, which is just, you know, it's the same protein, it's just a single amino acid change, and no one understands how or why, but that allows them to see things moving a little bit faster. Hmm. So they can see pitches better and anticipate better. 
And so it's training, but it's also genetics. Um, and so I'm, I butchered that, I'm sure. But there are num a number of examples. You know, there's a, um, there's a uh, group of people. So they found over 200 different polymorphisms that are associated with exercise traits and 20 different ones that are associated to separate ones that are associated with elite athlete status. So there is, and this is across, you know, all sorts of athletes all over the world. So this genetic component of it is undeniable. Yeah. And, you know, but then there's also the idea of, you know, nature and, you know, nature being the genetics and nurture being, you know, being able to um, have the time to practice, yeah. be able to, you know, have the family support the coaches. So there's a lot of different things that go into making an athlete and how we can contribute to helping make sure that what we're watching is fair within a range. We have to right. figure this out. This is, yeah. this is debates that are coming down all over the place uh, through the NCAA, as well as professional sports. Yeah. You know, and, what and, is, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I apologize for being interrupting. Yeah, it, that, that and perfect example is the NFL. You know, you'll the season will be going, and you'll hear about a guy who 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 gets suspended for a couple of games because he, you know, he took something that was off on the uh, PED list or something like that. And you know, those guys, uh, I, I would love to know what like what like a supplement regimen that those guys are on to you know that that brings it kind of right up to that line of being uh, illegal or not allowed within the NFL, you know? Right. And so, and I think that a lot of the settings of these are relatively arbitrary. Um, it's, you know, can you detect it? Um, so one of the more interesting studies here that kind of came out is, um, this was back in 2011 and 12. There was an Indian athlete named Duti Chand, uh, who was a sprinter, and she had hyperandrogenoidism, which uh, caused her body to naturally produce levels of testosterone that are in the range of what is typical for a male. And she was um, barred from international competition. And how do you go about taking, you know, so, yeah. you know, on yeah. one hand, you say, what, so where do you draw the line? And she fought and was eight, was eventually reinstated many years later. But this is, this is something that as we get better at testing, we aren't guess necessarily getting better at understanding where things come from and being able to discriminate between something that is natural and unnatural in a way that makes sense for the athletes to fairly compete. Yeah. And, and it sounds like the research that you were doing, and I assume that is still being done is to establish what, I guess, what a natural baseline would be. And then anything above that would maybe put up a red flag. Well, so that's then... what we started with. That was yeah. the, that was the naive starting point was, yeah, everybody should have about the same levels, but it turns out 
that's not true. Yeah. So, you know, do you punish an elite athlete for, say somebody has abnormally high levels of red blood cells, or say somebody has a mutation that makes them a, um, an able to run longer endurance. How do you, you know, that's, you know, 50 years ago, that would have just been, you know, a freak of nature, but now we know what it is and we know that not everybody has it. So do we, do we cater to the lower end of it or do we actually say, we understand why man, look at this person go and press the limits of what humans can do. Yeah. Well, and so to that point, what is, where, what are some of the new developments or or are you aware of what's kind of going on with the current research and the current, uh, I guess, experimentation that the anti-doping? Yeah. So there's like, like we kind of basically touched on here. Um, One of the, one of the more recent papers that popped out was um, screening for gene doping transgenes in horses using massively parallel sequencing. So what they are doing is taking horses that, you know, and that, you know, drawing blood from them and looking for um, ways in which people might've injected things in them. So they spike in positive things that they can test for. And so, you know, one of the things is if you put in a um, adeno-associated virus uh, with a cargo in it that is going to enhance gene production. So let's say you've got a panel of, I don't know, let's see here. This looked at 31, yeah, somewhere around 30 different um, types of thing, types of genes and uh Promoters. Basically, a promoter is something that allows transcriptional machinery to sit down on it and make the gene. And so under normal circumstances, you have um, exons and introns of DNA and you have promoters upstream. And so there's um, ways that you can look to see how genes are actually spliced and all of that together. This is oversimplifying it very much. But within the cargo load of an adeno-associated virus, you don't have room for all of that. So you actually have to put the whole gene together. And so you could actually sequence across these various regions and see whether they've been artificially created. And so what this group was doing, uh, and I should give credit where it's due, this is from uh, Jillian Manjo and Ed Ryder, um, and they are from the UK uh, at um, Cambridgeshire. And what they are trying to do is set up some sort of standard set of um, primers and um, basically conditions in which people can say, all right, you can search for any of these types of Um, changes that may be in horses, run this panel, and then if any of them pop up, that means that at some point down the line, they have been genetically modified. They have been modified with the- Artificially. Yeah. Artificially. And so this is really where a lot of the world is going. 
is looking for um, this as well as using um, CRISPR technology, uh, which is this gene editing where you think of uh, this Cas protein as a pair of molecular scissors. And you can go in and say, for instance, make a change that changes the myostatin gene from being really a, from being its normal effective to being maybe fivefold less effective. And that induces mus muscle growth. So you're looking at this both in animals and you can begin to do this in humans. I mean, there are ongoing CRISPR trials now uh, for humans to treat disease. Uh, monogenic diseases tend to be, what, or what are the focus at this point, like um, sickle cell or beta thalassemia, but they're ongoing in humans. And, if you don't mind me asking, what is that? Yeah. What is that process like? Does somebody go into a, an operation? To, I mean, what? How does um, that happen in a human? Or how does it, how does human, somebody, I guess, uh, implement that or administer so these, that? In these a human? things are given up. So these things are you can build these viruses in the lab, and you can inject viruses. I mean, they're viruses. I know. It's it's, it's absolute. It's crazy, isn't it? Okay, so just kind of using uh, a personal example from, from back in college um, when I played lacrosse in college. Uh, I remember at the end of the semifinals one year, um, it, it was a random drug test. So I got, I got grabbed out of basically out of the lineup. They came up to me and, and grabbed me. You know, I'm, I'm a freshman at this point. Uh, and so I go in and it's a urinalysis. So you go in, you got to take mm -hmm. a, uh, like, you give them a urine sample and the game would just, was just finished. I was exhausted. I was probably completely dehydrated. I remember having, I remember I was standing in the shower for like 20 minutes, just trying to try to get myself to go to the bathroom. So it, that's a kitschy example of the random. And, you know, back then they were just looking for whether kids are smoking pot or, you know, other right. drugs that kids do. What is that like? Do you know what that's like today? Like, like for instance, for an NFL team, do they, do they randomly do that? And, and how, how does yeah. that work? So I can, I can tell you that, one of the real problems with trying to detect um, these genetic modifications is that these are often given intramuscularly as an injection. And so what has to happen is you have to get a bit of a muscle biopsy to really see well. It's not gonna show up necessarily in saliva or tears or sweat or urine. So there's been a push to try to do non-invasive methods for all of this. You know, taking blood is some, you know, I mean, if you're an endurance athlete, taking blood out is certainly not something that you want. So trying to figure out, because you, you know, you've got different times, different people, you can't coordinate all of that. You know, it's going to be unfair at some point to somebody. Right. And you've got that. So people have been trying very hard to figure out how to be able to look at any sort of changes and test for this. Urine remains really still the top easy way of getting this. Um, one of the things that we did um, as we were um, working with some people was we used uh, buccal swabs, just took a little Q-tip swab the inside of the cheek, got a few cells, you could grow it and you could extract genomic DNA out of that. So you could also, you could not just do genomic DNA, you could also get uh, messenger RNA, which is kind of telling you what protein, uh, what the expression level of various genes are. So there's a lot of different ways. And sequencing technologies have gotten so good 
here that it's getting much cheaper to do all of this. You can do, you know, you could do a next generation sequencing uh, experiment and multiplex lots and lots of different samples. And so this is kind of how people are doing things today. And it's not terribly expensive, but you know, the idea, I guess one of the things that we should possibly consider is what is an ideal um, drug test? I mean, it would be something that's, you know, fast. It could be administered on the spot. Yeah. It's always accurate, you know, and so trying to find out what that is, it's, you know, and it's going to probably be different for a swimmer versus somebody who throws a shot put. And how do we actually begin to understand what are the right questions to ask? I'm a big fan of trying to figure out what's the right question to ask. The answer is always easy. The question is always hard. And this has been a really difficult thing. And I'm not real sure what the answer is, but I'm pretty sure that the technologies that we are developing are very much stop gaps for what needs to be done. This was I. That's what I find so fascinating about, it, especially when you uh, you cut me off earlier in terms of you know go easy on the nefarious aspect of this because it just it, it comes across as that you know it comes across yeah. as trying to do whatever you can to get that advantage over somebody and I right. and I keep going back to 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 the to the uh, Lance Armstrong uh, issue because I remember when I was reading his book, it's not about the bike, if I remember correctly the way they were, the way his team was telling everybody, it's like, well, you know, Lance just has a stronger heart muscle than, than mm -hmm. normal humans. He can pump more, more blood into his muscles and therefore get more oxygen in his muscles. And was what he was doing chemically, was that altering that? Or was he, did he actually have a naturally stronger heart? And that goes back to the, to your original point anyway. And, you know, it, it's, it's likely that it's both. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, you know, that's where it starts to get incredibly complicated. I think we talked about um, golfers as well and vision. And, you know, the, the really simple example of if you're a golfer and you have 20-20 vision and are able to shoot your round, that's great. Let's say though you decide to get LASIK surgery and you've got 20-10 vision. So you've actually got better than average. You're overcorrected and can see better. What advantage, if any, does that give you? It likely might give you, you know, it might, you know, archery might be a better example. There's a yeah. ton of different things where vision, baseball players, any of these things, is that considered, is corrective surgery considered to be a doping idea. And again, this is something that I think people can, intelligent people can disagree on. And there, it's not necessarily that there's a wrong or right answer. It's more that we need to figure out where the line is and what's stepping over it. Because, you know, I don't think either one of us would necessarily disagree that if you have a little bit better of an eyesight, at least I know with my golf game, it doesn't help me a damn bit. <laughs> but then again, I'm not an elite athlete. Yeah, I love it. And, and you know, it's, 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 this conversation is inevitably going into that, the realm of what you were talking about earlier. And that's that idea of where is the human 
being going, that bioethics, that whole that whole argument, and that's that's where it gets extremely extremely interesting. Uh, and I, I, I remember uh, just a couple months ago, it was on uh, on PBS. It was a documentary about um, this rock, this famous rock climber who got caught in a storm, um, ended up getting caught out in the out in the wilderness. All, almost died, ends up losing both his legs below his knees because of frostbite. And he still wanted to compete and still wanted to climb. So he made himself prosthetics. And then he realized, he's like, okay, I, I can do this. Then he goes and gets his PhD in biomechanics, now runs the biomechanics lab at MIT right now, building like the Terminator type second generation uh, prosthetics. And uh, it's fascinating because his they, they show, they open up the, the show with his Ted talk. And he said, he said something along the lines of, I'm not a cyborg yet, but I want to be like, and I can't wait to get there. And that's this whole, this whole bioethics thing. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And you know, I think you're exactly right that this, that we're going to have to deal with, and it will probably come in the Paralympic games before it comes anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, this mixture of human and machine yeah. and where does the humanity, where's, where's what's, what's considered human and what's considered robot versus, you know, in a sport setting. Yeah. And, you know, if you get an advantage, you know, that's, that's using your brain, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it, yeah. it's a different set of ethical questions. And I believe that, you know, any physically challenged person and mentally challenged as well should be able to compete in sport. That's, you know, that's a fundamental thing that makes us all, you know, competition is healthy for everyone. It's making sure that, you know, is somebody who has this set of enhanced bionic type legs going to be able to climb you know, faster. If yeah. that's the case, does it make sense co to compare apples to apples? And I think to kind of extend this metaphor a little bit, that what we're finding within human populations is that it's all apples, but you know, you've got your Granny Smiths, you've got your delicious reds, and but they're apples. Yeah. And yeah. What then constitutes an orange? And what are those limits? And I know that there are much more intelligent people than me out there who are trying to address exactly those, those points. But, you know, when you boil it down, a lot of this comes down to the passion of the human for being able to do things that we never thought yeah. possible. Yeah. And that's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, we're, we're right on the cusp. We're, we're right on the cusp of that in in humanity to taking it to that next level of exactly. what is it? Are we still human doing this? Yeah. Well, I mean, look at so look at what um, many athletes wear for um, protection of their knees and their legs uh, that are preventative. We haven't really gotten into the preventative side. If you've had an ACL tear, you know, and you have a brace 
that allows you to still compete by stabilizing the muscles. Is that really giving you an advantage? I mean, it's not necessarily an advantage, but it's something that other people don't have because you're protecting an asset during healing or protecting it from actually falling falling apart. Yeah. How does that how does that fit into all of this? I think that it's, you know, I think that it's something that again should be allowed, but I don't know, you know, I don't know whether it confers any sort of advantage or allow, you know, or, or whether it's simply an extension being able to extend the player's life, but it's a it's a small step from having a brace to having a brace that actually helps that enhances stabilization. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's probably coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as you're, and I'm just kind of thinking to myself, you know, why, why do I love watching professional football as an example? Mm-hmm. Because essentially you're looking at the human being at the highest level of athleticism. And, you know, so you got those guys out there, the top of the top, there's, there's probably call it a hundred of those guys that are just the epis, ep, you know, the apex of, of human athleticism. But then why are there three or four that are above all of them? You know, and, and that, be, and to me, I guess that would be the, the thing now that I, that I really appreciate is that's those, those innate things about an individual that makes them just that much better, even from the best. Exactly. And isn't that just, I mean, you know, there is nothing like watching a Tom Brady type person play. I mean, they are, these athletes are amazing. And you know, you, you watch some of these kids from high school into college and you see how fantastic they are. And when they hit the pros, they become part of this ultra elite group. But then there's some that just rise further and it's just absolutely the best thing to watch. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's why I love sports so much. Yeah, no, and I agree. And that's what I often kind of going back to Lance and, and sorry, Lance, I apologize about picking on you here, <laughs> but uh, you go, just going back to him, you know, I wondered if everybody, let's just say Lance was taking X and if all the rest of the field was able to take X as well, Mm-hmm. Would he still have dominated? And my personal personal feeling is, based on what I think I know of, of the type of character he is, he probably would have been still up at the top, even with all of that. Well, that's, that's where I think that, you know, you have, you know, that's why you can't just, and I agree completely, but you can't just say it's a genetic thing or it's yeah. a doping thing. It's also the nurture side of the of the athletes how many hours you practice how dedicated you are you know to the the best football players are the ones who understand the game from every aspect of it it's the same with football uh, soccer it's the same with basketball the real students of the sport the ones who take it in at every level are truly the ones who I think itself. And that's that nurture side. It's that love of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, I, I completely agree. Completely yeah. agree. One last, one last thing. And, and then I'll let you go here. What in, in, are you still involved in, in this sort of thing or have you kind of stopped doing this? 
you know, I've stopped doing this because um, as I've gone to work at um, a large multinational drug company, um, my ability to spend time doing these kind of other endeavors has minimized. However, gotcha. at some point, um, you know, I still know a couple of the people over there. And I think that it's probably a pretty good um, connection to make and would like to get back involved because, you know, there's also benefits for human disease in, in understanding yeah. some of this stuff. And yeah. so, you know, but that's kind of, that's, that's my, that's one of my interests and not necessarily the interest of, you know, my corporation. Right. But I certainly would like, I certainly think that understanding this and staying up on the field and under, and really following how these debates are going will help inform us with medicine. I mean, to go back and end with kind of one of the things that we started with, you know, thinking about muscular dystrophies. If, you know, the doping community is building muscle by inhibiting myostatin, you know, we can watch how this works and we can see and learn lessons from this. It might not be the best controlled experiments, but there are lessons to be gleaned from yeah. this. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Cece, this is fascinating. I could go, yeah. I could go on forever. I, I just I, I yeah, love talking about this sort of thing because it, I always, you always force me to think outside of my little, <laughs> my little bubble. So thank you very much. Um, and you do the same for me. That's why I think we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I definitely, I appreciate your time. And let me finish yeah. off by uh, saying, if you're in the military, the police departments or the fire departments, uh, first responders, if that's you out there, thank you very much for your service. Stay safe. CC King, as usual, it's a pleasure, sir. Thank you, sir. Have a All good right. one. Bye -bye. This is the Rain Man. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching Rain Man's Take, observations on the world we live in. If you like the content, don't forget to hit the subscribe button below. You can also follow Rain Man's Take on Instagram at Rain Man's Take. Also, check out our website at www.rainmanstakepodcast.com and send your comments to rainmanstake at gmail.com. Keep an eye out for future podcasts, which will be coming out every Thursday at 5 p.m. West Coast time. Thank you.